Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. If you've got your Bibles, go to Daniel chapter 3, page 727 in your pew Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can grab that Bible. Um, and if you're not used to navigating your way through the Bible, um, you get to that page, you'll see two columns. You'll see big numbers and little numbers, which is a little unusual when you're opening a, a book. Uh, the big numbers are the chapters. Uh, so we're going to Daniel 3. You see the big three there. And then go for the little number 14. Uh, and uh, that's kind of, those numbers are kind of tucked in, the, in between the sentences. And uh, that's kind of how we just, it's kind of our waypoint, how we find our way to a verse that we're going to read uh, in, in the Bible. So um, I'm, we're going to read there here in, in a second. Uh, as a kid growing up in boarding school, in fifth grade year, I was there and uh, there was a new student who came to the campus. Uh, his dad worked for a business in town uh, in Penang, Malaysia. And uh, Kelly came to the campus and uh, Kelly, not too long after he was there, brought with him some contraband. Now, anytime you say the word contraband, curiosity rises, and I don't know what it is about that, but it's just like we're drawn, okay, what is it, what is it? Well, he brought cigarettes to the campus, and this just caused all kinds of curiosity among us because, um, you know, we, we, were, we were told they were bad, and, um, but there was something intriguing about the cigarettes, and so Kelly invited the fifth grade boys to go down to the beach and to try out these cigarettes. So, fifth grade boys did that very thing, went down to the beach after school, and they smoked the cigarettes and tried them out. Um, they were sworn to secrecy that no one would tell anyone that they had smoked cigarettes. They went back to the dorm smelling like cigarettes, um, and, uh, and they got found out. Uh, they called into the dorm parents' apartment. Uh, they were all uh, disciplined. There were consequences that were uh, handed out actually through the rest of that term. And, um, and then uh, two kids, myself and a kid named Stuart, were also called into the uh, dorm parents' apartment. And uh, they told us about the fifth grade boys uh, being disciplined. And then they just heaped praise on us for being young men with character and a moral backbone, not succumbing to the peer pressure to go down to the beach and suck on cigarettes. And, um, and we, we received all that praise and thanked them, and we walked out, I walked out of the, the dorm parents' apartment, and I turned to Stuart and I said, did you know they were smoking cigarettes down on the beach? And he said, no. I said, I didn't either. We weren't invited to join the crowd. <laughs> And I guarantee you uh, that, that if I was invited, I would have felt the pressure to, to fit in with the, with the guys and be down there and not stick out and be an object of ridicule for not, you know, for being too goody shoes to, to, to smoke a cigarette or try smoking a cigarette. Um, but I look back and I'm grateful that I wasn't invited, that I was overlooked because uh, indeed I would have succumbed to the pressure. And that pressure, uh, you, you felt it in school. You, it, it didn't end in elementary school or middle school or high school. If you went to college, you felt it there. You feel it in life. It's alive and well in business. It's alive and well in your neighborhood. It's alive and well in government, arts, education. It's everywhere you turn. And it seems like the older you get, the pressure, it just feels different. And today, when we get to Daniel chapter 3, we're going to see some intense pressure. The intense pressure to, to bow to the cultural pressure of the day. A little bit of insight on Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar is building his empire. 
It's, it's, a, it's an empire. It's a very diverse empire. He's conquering nations, and as he conquers those nations, he's bringing from those nations the sort of the rising stars of each of those, those countries that he's conquered. He's bringing in this, the elites to Babylon. They will be indoctrinated in the ways of the Babylonian empire, um, but he's, he's building a very uh, diverse, multinational, multiracial empire. And when we get to Daniel chapter 3, um, he, what he's going to do is... Uh, in this very religiously pluralistic society, he's going to build a gold statue, 90 feet tall. A lot of biblical scholars believe the statue's inspired by the dream we looked at in Daniel chapter two. 90 feet tall, and he's arranged for the band to play, and when the band plays, everyone in Babylon is to bow before the idol. Now, here's what, here's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. He's not saying you can't worship privately. He's not saying you have to worship this idol instead of your, your, uh, your gods from these, this multi-faith, multi-national uh, you know, empire, Babylon. He's saying, no, not instead of, but in addition to. And this is what every religious, religiously pluralistic society does. It says, look, you can do what you want in private, but when it comes to public, you, you need to, we, we need to be together on this. In fact, Leslie Newbegin uh, says this. He says, a, religious, a religiously pluralistic society believes that the differences between the religions are not a matter of truth and falsehood, but of different perceptions of the one truth. That to speak of religious beliefs as true or false is inadmissible. Religious belief is a private matter. So Daniel chapter three, we, uh, we do begin reading in uh, verse 14. The, the statue's been built, the music has played, and there's three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Rakshak and Benny, for those of you who speak veggie tales. They, uh, they don't bow. They don't cave in to the, the pressure, and now they're facing Nebuchadnezzar in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. Because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, 
Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Uh, Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officials, officers, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can can rescue like this Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. This is God's holy word. Friends, here's the question I want to get to today. When the pressure is being applied, when the pressure, the cultural pressure is being applied, how do we live a life in such a way that we don't bow the knee to the idols of the day? Because the pressure, I mean, there's no 90-foot statue being built downtown, right? There's no band that's being set up on a stage that when the music plays, that you're going to be forced to bow to the statue or you will be thrown into a fiery furnace. That's not happening in town. But the pressure's there. It's real. See, I've got a friend. He's running a business in a town. And uh, in his his excavation business, uh, as he runs that business, uh, there's competitors, and they're bidding for the same jobs. And the competitors, they're cutting corners. And they're kind of barely legal, and they're not really building to code or doing it to code. And, uh, and, and, And they're lowering their costs so they can win the bid and get the job. And the pressure is on my friend, a Christian. Will his convictions that he hold in private be played out in public? I mean, will he cut corners? Will he be barely legal? And if he does then he's bowing to the idol. There was a study done by, in, in Oxford recently where they studied two groups, two sets of men. First group of men ages 18 to 23 going to American University. They studied these men who grew up and they studied them specifically because these were men, several thousand, who had not been given any instruction by their parents about sexual activity. That there's no instruction about that being reserved for marriage. And as they study these men in American universities, what they discovered is that these men, ages 18 to 23, when they finished university, 77% of them were, were sexually active before they were married. Then they studied a second group of men. Men who grew up in families who were told that they should reserve sexual activity for the covenant of marriage. And they went, these, these men went to churches. And and this was reinforced in the teaching at their churches. And what they discovered is that 73% of those men were sexually active in universities. 77%, 73%, barely a difference. They'd succumbed to the pressure. Friends, the tension, the pressure is real. And if you don't feel it, it's probably because you've already bowed to it. It looks a bunch of different ways. You know what it looks like. You know what it feels like. How do we not bow to the cultural pressures of today? 
We can take some lessons here from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And real quickly, here, here, here's the first thing I'd say to us. We, we need to be fully persuaded that Jesus is worth it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are facing a fiery furnace. I mean, this is being burned alive. This is, this is the real deal. This is something that's very intense. And the pressure is coming their way. And, uh, and at some point in time, in, in their minds, they've got to process this point that, that look, uh, do I value my life more than I value my relationship with my God? And they come to the, to the conclusion that their relationship with God is more valuable than their life. Their convictions, the things that are of value and importance to them. It, it's Jesus, is he more, is he our treasure? The psalmist Asaph writes in Psalm 73, he talks about, he says, you know, my feet were, they were on slippery ground. I almost slipped, I almost fell. And as he's writing, what, what he's saying is, he's, I, I'm looking at the lives of those who have no relationship with God. And you know what? Their lives are better. They're healthier. They're wealthier. They mock those who don't worship God. They say, God's not looking. God doesn't care. And he says, my, my feet almost slipped. And in verse 17 of Psalm 73, Asaph writes, then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. He said, I, I, I went and I, I spent time with you, with God's people in the sanctuary, and I was reminded of eternity. And then Asaph says, after all this complaining, almost, he says, is this worth it? All this pain? And he ends his psalm by saying, who do I have in heaven but you, O God? And there's nothing on earth I desire more than you. Friends, can we say that? Can, can we, is Jesus our treasure? For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that is the conviction that they came to. So even the threat of a fire furnace, they wouldn't allow that to separate them from their relationship with God. Here's the second thing we see from the story. Be prepared for the pressure those closest to you will apply on you. Let's go back to Daniel chapter two. The Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream, a statue, and he, and he says to the people who have no idea what the dream is, tell me my dream, and then you can tell me the interpretation, and I'll believe that you, that you can interpret it, interpret it correctly. And, uh, and so uh, it's, a, it's, it's a very, I mean, it's a huge request. His wise men, magicians say, no one, no one asks that kind of question. That's a ridiculous request. And Nebuchadnezzar, he threatens them with the same threat in chapter three. It must have been his go-to threat. If you don't do this, I'm tearing you limb from limb and I'm turning your house into heaps of rubble. And, uh, and, and, and then you know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these th same three guys in chapter three, and Daniel have a prayer meeting and God reveals the dream. And because God reveals the dream, whose lives are spared? The astrologers, the magicians, they, they, they get to live because God reveals a dream to Daniel. So they're grateful, right? They're happy and they pledge loyalty to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for about five minutes, because when you get to Daniel chapter three, when the music plays and those three guys do not bow, who is it that goes to Nebuchadnezzar and complains and says, there's Jewish men right here among us that do not care about you, Nebuchadnezzar. It's the same guys whose lives were spared by God in chapter two. Friends, it's completely understandable when those who don't embrace the same beliefs, who don't even follow the same God that you and I follow, who put pressure on you to live or to believe a certain way. We can kind of understand that, but you know when the pressure gets really hard? It's when it's applied by those who are closest to us. It's those we work with, those perhaps even in our family. 
And, and the question is, you know, will we bow the knee when people who really matter to us, when they begin to apply that pressure? Don't think for a moment that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't have their friends saying to them, look, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, we all know that you love God. We all know that you worship him. We, we, we know, just bow, I mean, what if God's placed you in the corridors of power and influence for such a time as this? What, we, we know you don't, you're not worshiping the idol, just, just bow, and that way you'll be able to influence and look out for the Jewish people in the place that God has placed you. Don't think for a moment that their friends didn't say something like that. And that pressure is heavy and real. And you know what it feels like. And yet, they didn't bow. If you're gonna stand and not bow before the cultural pressures of today, then Jesus must be our treasure. He must be your treasure. And you gotta be prepared for some of those closest to you to be the ones to apply that pressure. And the third thing I would say is this. You need to expect suffering. I know, I sound like Pastor Eeyore this weekend, okay? <laughs> Friends, you have to expect suffering. See, I, I think many of us in Western Christianity have embraced a gospel that sounds like this. Life goes better with Jesus. And we start following after Jesus and we have, we have such an underdeveloped theology of suffering. We love the power, we love the high moments, but when, when suffering hits us, it just blows us away. Why is this happening to me? I'm doing all this stuff that I'm supposed to be doing. How could God let this happen to me? I'm living a good life. Friends, can I just tell you that Jesus lived a perfect life and he didn't get a pass? What makes you think that you will? We have to expect suffering. Peter, writing to a suffering church, these are people being thrown to the lions, says this, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says, you know what? The weight of suffering could be, could be reduced by 50% if we just simply were not shocked by it. Because our brothers and sisters in the global south, our brothers and sisters around the world, they don't like suffering, just like we don't like suffering, but they understand that it's part of life. Us, who live in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in one of the wealthiest nations in the world, we're just shocked by it when it comes our way. How could this happen? Friends, don't be shocked. Expect pain and suffering in this life. It will happen. But understand that God often uses it powerfully for his purposes. First Peter chapter one, Peter gets back at this. He says, there is a wonder, there's wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Think about that. You love him even though you've never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice 
Uh, you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. What Peter is saying is, look, don't be shocked by suffering. Expect it. And when it comes your way, here's, here's, it refines you. It grows you. Look, if, if, you've, if you talk to people who've been through pain and suffering, they will tell you that's when they grow. Because if you really want to know what's in your heart, if you really want to be a person of compassion, if you want to be a person who has a profound trust in God and you want to be a person that possesses wisdom, then you need to, you're going to need to go through suffering. Because the people that you respect, the people that you would declare as wise, the people that you say are rock solid in their faith, the people that you go to when you're in pain because you know they're compassionate, and the people that you know are the real deal in their walk with God, these are people who've been in pain. And we can't expect that we get a pass when it comes to pain and suffering. Trina and I experienced this um, quite personally. When we, we were in uh, Hong Kong, we were in Kelso, Washington. We are pastoring church there and never thought we'd leave. God called us to plant an international church in Hong Kong. Um, and we knew that's what he was calling us to do, and we were serious about obeying that call, and so we sold everything we had. Um, we sold the things that were really important to us. I sold my boat. I sold fishing rods. I sold fishing tackle. This is how much I embraced the call, okay? We, lit, we didn't put anything in storage. We sold everything we had because we thought we were going for a long time. We went to Hong Kong with our four kids and 12 suitcases, we got there, planted the international church, and it took off. I remember the first person who gave a life to Jesus. His name was Jonas from Denmark, and I had the privilege of discipling him. And as that church grew, it was about 150, it grew. Uh, the mother church and I, I, that was helping plant, I just sensed some tension, and I quickly realized that, you know, I, I'm not sure if this church, which is a great church, it's got great leadership, um, I'm not sure if this church really wants an international church. In fact, it turned out what, what they were really hoping for was an English version of what they were already doing. And so we realized, having sold everything we had, that this thing was not gonna go anywhere and we'd left a place we loved and, and this was gonna lead to disappointment. We had some friends back in the US who uh, heard about our story and they wanted to provide some relief to us. And so they helped us uh, go on vacation to Thailand, the Christmas break. And so we got on a plane Christmas day looking forward to a time in Thailand. Uh, we arrived there late, uh, or actually it was early uh, Boxing Day, 2004. Went to our little hostel that we were staying in and that morning the tsunami hit. We were fine, but the school that my kids went to um, the next few weeks, um, we went to funerals of fellow students and teachers and family members who were killed in the tsunami. It was a time of horrible loss and devastation. Shortly after that, we're wrapping up our time in Hong Kong. A couple months later, I give my resignation. Uh, we had signed a lease with an apartment for two years. We were only going to be there one year. I found someone else to lease the other year. The landlord, long story short, wasn't happy with that and was suing me and said I needed to pay $30,000 U.S., uh, because that rent is very high in Hong Kong, and that was the cost uh, for the rent for one year, even though I had somebody to take over the apartment. Um, while I'm dealing with that, that heavy financial burden, I'm on a subway, and I'm going home, and I get a call from Trina, and she tells me that my oldest son, Chase, our oldest son, Chase, has, uh, has 
done something to his toe, and as the doctors have discovered that there's not only an infection in his foot and his toe, it's actually the infection has seeped into this bone, and they're telling uh, me on the phone that they're going to have to amputate his leg. I'm standing on the subway, knowing I've sold everything I had to follow this call. It's not turned out the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to write a check for $30,000, and now my son is going to lose his leg? And I'm reminded of the quote by Teresa Avila who says, God, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few of them. Because this is too much. And tears are running down my cheeks as I'm standing on the subway packed with people. It's this crowded loneliness. Long story short, I spare you all the details. My son's leg is not amputated. He, he, he's got his leg. He's got his foot. Um, and, and we came from Hong Kong to Salem Alliance. And we came very disoriented and disillusioned. And if you were here when we first came here, and we didn't know, we looked like we were dazed, we were dazed. We had questions, and they were not answered. And most of them are still unanswered. Some of you have been there. You know the pain of suffering. And when suffering hits, the heaviness of the pressure to bow and to give up and throw in the towel is there. Friends, when Jesus is your treasure, when even those who are closest to you are applying pressure, and even though you're walking through the fire, the fire is a metaphor in Scripture for trials and tribulation. Even when you're there, what you find is that there are God, there's a God that I, I wish he did the miracle before you got into the fire. But in this story, the miracle happens in the fire. It's as you're going through it. Some of you are there. Your God has not forgotten you. He's with you. He sees you. I'm saying that as someone who knows a little bit about pain. Not, not a ton, but a little bit. Some of you in the room have walked through much hotter fires than I've walked through. Your God is with you. Now, I, I just want to wrap up by saying a couple things. First of all, I, I want to talk to those of you in the room who would describe yourself, you would not describe yourself as Christian. You're seeking, or you're, you're trying to figure out God, or you're here because somebody drug you here today, and you're just putting in the time. You're here, though, and I want you to hear this. I want to encourage you to investigate today's cultural claims. See, there are claims being made today. One of them, if you were to write a statement of faith, it's the doctrine for a post-Christian culture. And by the way, everybody's got doctrine. And everyone's got dogma. They just may not say they do, but they do. And one of the statements of faith that you would put in today's culture is this. It is wrong to tell somebody they're wrong. It's wrong to tell somebody they're wrong unless they're telling somebody else that they're wrong. That, that, that's very pervasive in our culture. That's some of the pressure that you're feeling in life. And along comes Jesus who says, I am the way. I'm the pathway. I am, I, I am the truth. I embody what is reality. I am the life. Not just physical life, but eternal life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the door, I'm the gate, I'm the narrow way. And that just collides with what you're hearing in culture today. 
And just like you saw that video before I got up here to talk, I, I want to encourage you to investigate who Jesus is. And don't give up on that journey. I, and, and do it honestly. Ask your, ask your hardest questions. See, one of the other things about culture today is they're saying there's no one faith that actually embodies all truth. Now, there can't be one way. You know, here, here's a great question that you should consider if that's what you're thinking. I'll put it up here on the screen. How could you possibly, Tim Keller uh, puts this in, in his book called The Reason for God. How could you possibly know that no one religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claimed that none of the religions have? You see what Keller's getting at? How could you say that there's no one way to God? Because if you're saying there's no one way, then you have to have comprehensive knowledge of all spirituality to say that that's the truth. You, you, you got to think. You got to process this through your soul and your spirit and, and, and be honest. In fact, just take something like, you know, why is it wrong in every culture to murder somebody? Where did that knowledge come from? And I know you're hearing today that, that it, all knowledge is, is revealed by science, but guess what? That knowledge of being it's wrong to steal or it's wrong to, to murder someone was not discovered in a laboratory. It was placed in your heart by a God who loves life and wants you to enjoy life. Just investigate today's culture claims. I, I, just, I just, I dare you. Double dog. Okay, here's the second, second thing I'll say. <laughs> I want to talk to those of you who would call yourselves Christians. Okay? Look, we need to learn to live as exiles. You, you, you got to get this. We're, we're doing Daniel on purpose because there's a shift in culture. Okay? It, we need to learn to, to live as exiles. You know, there was a day when the church was at the center of society. Remember Little House in the Prairie? Some of you are old enough to remember Little House in the Prairie. Everything happened in the church in the center of town. Well, guess what? The church is no longer the center of society. It's been pushed to the margins. It's been pushed to the margins, and as it's been pushed to the margins, there are some of us who are so upset that we've been pushed to the margins, and what we're using is battle metaphor, and we're talking about taking background and getting back to the center. And we're angry, and we're motivated by power and control, meaning that we're going to get the right people in the right offices and we're going to get our way and we're going to do it. We're going to win it. And can I just tell you that power and control and anger have nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. If it did, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross. He avoided manipulation and power and control and he humbled himself and offered his life as a ransom. Some of us are yearning for the good old days. Can I just read you something from the very word of God? Ecclesiastes 7, verse 10. Don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. This is God's holy word. <laughs> We've got to learn how to do life at the margins. Now get this. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You plant it, you start throwing some yeast. That's another metaphor Jesus uses on the margins. And the kingdom of God advances in the way God intended it to advance. God's not up there wringing his hands, wondering who's gonna stand up for me? What he's looking for is people who are faithful, faithful enough to walk into the fire.
Which then leads us to my last question, and it's simply this. Am I in any way bowing to the idol? And whatever that looks like, have I given in? Have I succumbed to the pressure? Is my private life looking different than my public life? Now, friends, allow the Holy Spirit to do his work of conviction, but do not confuse his conviction with condemnation. See the conviction as an invitation to be in right relationship with your Father, and he has made that possible through his Son. Let's pray. So, Lord, we are a weak people, and we can't stand without you. So we need you. We need your grace to forgive us as you highlight and point out ways that we have bent the knee to the gods of today. Wash us, cleanse us. In the words that Jeff read to us from Psalm 32, may we know that joy of being cleansed. And pour out faith into our hearts and remove all fear for you are God who is sovereign. It's in your sovereign name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.